One of the true superpowers of Python is the libraries over at the Python package index. They're all just a pip install away. And yet, like all code that we run on our systems, it is done with some degree of trust. How do we know that all those useful packages are trustworthy? That's the topic of this episode. Bence Tozer and John Speedmeyers are here to share their research into typo squatting on PyPI and other sneaky deeds. And we also get a chance to discuss some potential solutions, fixes, and tools to help solve this problem. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 319, recorded May 26th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Square and us over at Talk Python Training. Please check out what we're offering during our segments. It really helps support the show. Hey all, I have a quick announcement. We've had transcripts for all of our episodes for a long time, but recently we put more time and effort into making them more useful for you. Now, every show has a link to the transcripts right in your podcast player, and that transcript page lets you filter, search, and playback audio from exact moments within the transcript. I hope you enjoy the richer experience around using our episodes as reference materials. I'm also happy to announce a new sponsor of the show, Assembly AI. Assembly AI is a top-rated API for automatic speech-to-text. You can transcribe videos and audio files with human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. To help us keep leveling up our transcript game, they're sponsoring the transcripts for our episodes going forward. So thank you to Assembly AI for higher-quality transcripts and supporting the podcast. Check them out at talkpython.fm assemblyai. Now, on to that conversation. Ben, John, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you both here. It's going to be exciting unnerving, I might say, a little bit to have this conversation, but I think it's certainly high time. You'll never pip install the same way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You just kind of hold your breath as you do it each time. <laughs> and, you know, I'm also, this is not a, a challenge that just the Python world faces. That's right? right. This is anyone that has a package manager. Yep. And the more open, the bigger the difficulties, I suppose, right? So NPM, yes. gems, like you name it, right? Yep. Yep. If you're a software developer these days, it probably affects you. Absolutely. So before we get into the typo squatting, the supply chain issues and all the stuff and history and current problems and, you know, what, on the positive side, there are solutions and tools and things that we can talk about as well. Before we get into all that, let's start with your story, maybe abbreviated version since there's a couple of you events. How do you get into programming in Python? Uh, programming, I got into just as a kid. got a computer when I was, I don't know, nine or 10 and tinkered around with it, enjoyed it. Ended up actually taking programming classes in high school, stuck with it in college, majored in computer engineering, and was a software developer for system engineer, that sort of stuff in the defense industry for 20 years. Yeah. What languages did you start in or mainly use? Uh, originally started in C, actually originally on Pascal, uh, then started in C, C++, and transitioned over to doing more active Python development. Uh, I just needed a web scraper, needed to collect some data and, and analyze it, and Python was the, the right tool for the job. You didn't want to do that in C++? I did not, no. <laughs> <laughs> and now, you know, Python is my preferred language for tinkering or back-end web development. Pretty much as much as I can use it for, I, I use Python. Yeah, fantastic. John, how about you? I don't have 
quite the classic story. I learned it th uh, programming through statistics classes in undergrad, specialized language called Stata that a lot of economists use. Good for legal trials, well-tested. But I didn't learn Python until I, in grad school, I took more data science classes and learned the typical NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn sort of stuff. Right. They're like, let us introduce you to probably, it was called IPython at yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. And now, of course, yeah. Jupyter Notebooks, that sort of thing. Yeah, fantastic. Really interesting just to see all the broad and diverse ways that Python is, is growing and people are coming into it. You know, it's, it's not that, well, I learned it for programming, you know, building an operating system and on I went. And there's a lot of languages that are fairly, you know, or JavaScript. I built it to work on a website, right? Yeah. It draws people in from all sorts of places, yeah. which is awesome. It's I think. a meeting ground. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the strengths, actually, kind of a sidebar, is that we have all these people with different backgrounds and different motivations and interests and things they're trying to build rather than being more like, well, here's how I build my web app. How do you build your web app? Yeah, very cool. And how about now? Vince, what are you up to day to day? So day to day, you know, kind of you know, put down the keyboard, at least from the programming perspective. And I work as a cybersecurity subject matter expert for InQtel, which um, so I guess my job there is to search for and then work with companies we find in the cybersecurity industry could have a high impact on national security. Uh, as well as providing kind of advisory services to our our customers in the U.S. government. Okay, cool. So what's IQTEL and QTEL? Sorry, IQTEL, I guess it is. Yes. Well, yeah. What's the company story there? Because you both are from the same company. Yeah. So it's a nonprofit, five hundred one c three, stood up a little over twenty years ago by the CIA to basically help. You know, originally the CIA, but now it's seen most of the intelligence community and, and elements of the DoD basically ad ad acquire and adopt and, and use cutting edge technology. They realized a little while ago, you know, around that time that. A lot of innovation was moving into Silicon Valley and into other places in industry and startups. And the traditional acquisition model that federal government uses doesn't play well with those people. They don't understand it. So we kind of help as a bridge working with uh, startups, identifying them, and then helping them interact with the government and conversely helping the government you know, adopt said technologies and you know, help, right, right. help support their mission. So maybe let me see if I can run a scenario by you. Maybe there's some Silicon Valley company that's created like a cool uh, ML thing that identifies deforestation or something like that. And the, the government decides, oh, this might be really helpful for us for, I have no reason why. I have no idea why, but imagine there's a reason, right? You might help that company like work with the request for proposals and the whole crazy government side of things and get them more in line with what's needed there. Is that the story? Yeah, that's, that's to an extent. Yeah. I mean, we actually invest in them, take equity and that yeah, do help them learn how to interact with the government and also help them shape their product to meet our customer needs. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Interesting. I had no idea such a company exists. John, how about yourself? I'm in also at IQT. I work in what's called IQT Labs. It's an open source applied research and development lab where we do hands-on research, mostly in the open source, largely on GitHub. Cool. Sounds very, very fun. Now, let's talk about the supply chain issue, I guess, at a real broad level, right? And I don't know how you all feel. I suspect, <laughs> suspect that you have a a little more hesitancy or, or whatever as you interact with the with computers and software and the internet and so on. You know, when you, oh, there's a cool new app, maybe I'll try that. Like, you might think a little more carefully about this than the average, you know, say teenager or whatever. There's a little bit of paranoia that comes with this. It's true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at. And I feel like one of the more insidious aspects of this has been the supply chain side of things, right? Because it's one thing to say that app looks shady, that site looks shady. Let me just not go there. Let me not click that link. Let me not install that. But if I were to install, you know, Office Suite X, and I completely trust the company that makes that, 
but there's some library that they got from a third party and that third party had been hacked and they somehow trojaned that third party thing and no one's found out yet. I don't know. That's super scary. And that's kind of along the lines of some of the things that we're touching on. And so I think the most broad one of those in the recent times has got to be solar winds, right? That's certainly what's uh, making the headlines these days still, even, you know, <laughs> yeah, even yeah. What, five, four or five months later. Um, it's yeah, still a topic of discussion around this theme. And yeah, I mean, that was a pretty challenging attack to pull off. I mean, it took nation state actors months, maybe years to plan, you know, laying the groundwork, getting things in place, you know, basically infiltrating SolarWinds development infrastructure. Pretty impressive, honestly, that they were able to do it. And obviously the impact was was enormous. It was, it was wildly successful. I think one thing that Vince and I have been interested in, though, while this sort of attack is very serious and obviously has rightly gathered a lot of attention, there are a number of other types of attacks, often focusing on open source software, that are actually more numerous. How serious they are is actually open to debate, but we are still talking many people affected and can still have grave consequences, especially if you're the one that's hacked. Yeah, so absolutely. it's gotten less front of the newspaper attention, but Vince and I still think it's serious. Yeah, I think it's very serious. I started with this one because I feel like everyone has heard about that's this. Right. Everyone can relate to this, right? Yeah. And here's an example of a company that supplies network gear to many of the largest companies and government organizations around the world. And this was basically a way to get, you know, access to all of those. That's uh, right. They think it's Russia's cozy bear crew, mm -hmm. but yeah, who knows, right? And it almost almost doesn't matter. Another one that I think also in the, it's in the news really quick before we jump into the open source stuff, this is not open source at all, but was called Xcode Ghost. Have you two heard of this? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, basically what happened here was, you know, app developers, iOS developers in, in China, you know, don't like to download or can't download stuff from the Apple official Apple version of Xcode. So someone, you know, put a compromised version of Xcode up on some... So let's get it off BitTorrent or something. That <laughs> yeah, that I mean, off of some Chinese file sharing site that app developers over there <laughs> like to use because it's more convenient. And, you know, they, it was compromised. There was a basically a something that would bake a, a backdoor into, you know, the ultimate compiled app that would go into the App Store or variant of the, the App Store. Yeah, so every app that was built and published to the App Store with Xcode Ghost, which looked exactly like Xcode, injected a backdoor malware type of thing into it. So there was something like 2,500 applications, uh, the iOS App Store, that, yeah, affected like 128 million people. So that that's bad kinds of things, right? Very uh, bad. Not, not ideal. <laughs> on, on top, I mean, I guess attacking a compiler, I mean, developers trust their compiler, I would say. I mean, not being able to yeah. rely on that or feel like you have, and it's very hard to vet your, I mean, especially for closed source or closed this source uh, product like Xcode, it's very hard to see, is my compiler compromised or not? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this actually is closer to the open source side of things, right? Because if you can start to infect the tools of the developers building the things, that's a problem. Yeah. So let's talk about the open source side. John, you pointed out there's many known attacks over there. That's right. Set the stage. What's going on? There's actually a range of attacks, but I'll mention a couple here and we'll get into typo squatting. So there is certainly a typo squatting attack, which we'll discuss extensively today, which just like domain names, you might have heard someone is trying to go to a website and uh, mistypes it a little or somehow gets confused about how it's spelled, maybe switching the order of words, and then ends up someplace that's malicious, either on the web or if you're downloading a package, you download a package you think you want, but it's not actually. 
And sometimes, not always, sometimes that contains malware and does things to your computer that you don't want. That's bad, right? Bad. <laughs> Especially if there's ar arbitrary code execution, meaning they yeah. can do what yeah. they want because perhaps you've installed it as root. Right. And well, I think a lot of people who are getting into Python don't realize that when you pip install something, unless it's being installed as a wheel, as a binary wheel, it's running a setup.py as your account. So whatever your current account is able to do, like you said, if you run it as sudo, it's it can do more. But even if it can just completely wreck your account and get your information. For many people, that's plenty bad on your computer. You don't want yeah, that. Yeah, and it could be your computer, it could be your, your corporation's computer where you work or your company's computer. And this setup.py, you're exactly right, is a key attack vector. For many people, it's simply uh, a helpful way to install software. But unfortunately, some people abuse that specific resource. Yeah, I think it's been critical in the growth of how software is built. I remember, you know, Vince, you were talking about doing C++ programming. I remember back in 97, 98, 99, doing C++ programming then, and it felt like whatever you wanted to do, almost everything you had to build from scratch. Oh, you want a yep. library that does this kind of UI widgets? Well, how do I build that? You want a library that has this kind of data structure? And where do I either find or build that, right? And now it's just pip install this thing, pip install that thing. And the, the building blocks that we have to compose are so much more effective. Right. I can take a couple of libraries here and click them together. And all of a sudden I've got something absolutely incredible, like pulling data from different sources, creating amazing graphs. I mean, that is the power of modern yeah. software development. Right. And yet, you know, I guess Corey Atkins out in the, the live stream has a, a nice <laughs> sort of comment. There's like uh, he said, I didn't realize how naive I was thinking packages were vetted. Like you're not alone, and Corey. And so you're not alone. Join yeah. the club. <laughs> This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Square. Payment acceptance can be one of the most painful parts of building a web app for a business. When implementing checkout, you want it to be simple to build, secure, and slick to use. Square's new web payment SDK raises the bar in the payment acceptance developer experience and provides a best-in-class interface for merchants and buyers. With it, you can build a customized, branded payment experience and never miss a sale. Deliver a highly responsive payments flow across web and mobile that integrates with credit cards and debit cards, digital wallets like Apple Pay and Google, ACH bank payments, and even gift cards. For more complex transactions, follow-up actions by the customer can include completing a payment authentication step, filling in a credit line application form, or doing background risk checks on the buyer's device. And developers don't even need to know if the payment method requires validation. Square hides the complexity from the seller and guides the buyer through the necessary steps. Getting started with a new web payment SDK is easy. Simply include the web payment SDK JavaScript, flag an element on the page where you want the payment form to appear, and then attach hooks for your custom behavior. Learn more about integrating with Square's web payments SDK at talkpython.fm slash square, or just click the link in your podcast player show notes. That's talkpython.fm slash square. These incredible building blocks, these Lego pieces, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of faith out there that, that these are good building blocks. Not not good in the sense they don't have bugs, but good in that they have a good intent. Well, I think that's one thing that's the, the key is that, it, and one of the things that's a challenge here is you have to kind of figure out the intent of the people you're trusting and where you are trusting them ultimately. And you have to hope they do not have malicious intent because inferring that is, is very challenging. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword. Um, I mean, I agree. It is a powerful change that you can download a couple of libraries and have an amazing app, potentially in a few minutes, maybe an hour or two. 
And uh, this is the dream of code reuse come alive, finally. And it just so happens that there are sometimes downsides. They can be mitigated. But unfortunately, to the unaware user, which it's all too easy to be unaware, it's difficult, actually, there are serious, there can be risks. Yeah. There definitely can. Kim Van Wyck on the live stream has uh, an example. You know, a benign example would be Atter, A-T-T-R versus Atters. Both are legitimate packages, but completely different. You know, another example would be if I want to install requests, but I actually just type request. Right? I mean, even auditorily, like they sound like requests. requests easy to that, do. It sounds, it's even sounds like very similar with the S versus yeah. no S there. And if somebody says, go install requests, you're like, oh, request, pip install request. God, I did it. Like, wait, no, 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 don't do that one. Yeah, and it actually happened. You can find that that attack truly happened, affected, at least according to the article published about it, 20,000 users. So I don't know how many of them were actually affected. I haven't, we, we don't, this is unfortunately part of the problem. It's, it's hard to track this data. But the example you brought up, I know you brought it up on purpose. It's, it's serious. <laughs> yeah. And requests with the S is installed millions of times a lot. week or a month. Yeah. Many, 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 many yeah. times, yeah. right? We'll talk about this later, but we found one called Pandar, like pandas, but with an R. And, uh, you know, it's not hard to imagine just by uh, either confusion or a mistake typing this. Yeah, absolutely. So another area I think that is a little bit interesting before we dive completely into the package management type of squatting and related type of issues has to do with a trusted open source thing becoming untrusted. And what I mean by that is there were some examples of things like Google Chrome extensions being put out there as proper extensions and then someone taking over that project and then putting something maybe more adware in it or something somewhat nefarious, if not actually malicious, or you know, somebody who is running the request is not a great example because it's under a PSF organization, but many of the projects are under an individual, right, on their GitHub project. And so if somebody was able to break into that person's GitHub repo, and then they somehow sneak something into the code, well, does it look wrong? No, the, the person who made that change is the trusted, benevolent person who runs this project, right? They are, if, you know, Guido Van Rossum comes in and makes a change, well, who's going to look at that and go, oh, this, is, this guy's sketchy. We better really, <laughs> like, it's probably going to be fine, right? So if someone takes over an account, like, not only do they have access to the code and then how it gets pushed out to, you know, potentially gets into the stream that goes to PyPI, it's also done by the person who looks like they should be most trusted, right? So things like two-factor auth and just securing your GitHub and things along those lines seems extremely important as well. Absolutely. I mean, what you're describing with account takeovers happened numerous times. And there's variants on it too, where there's some single developer who's overworked, tired, doesn't use the project they create anymore. And they just hand it over to someone who ends up, you know, putting a backdoor in it or some sort of malicious payload. I mean, that, that's happened. And then also people take advantage of the fact that not only do you have your GitHub profile secure, but you also have to have your PyPy or Ruby Gems or, you know, where you actually publish your packages yep. that people run. Yep. So there's kind of two areas you know, for potential attack. And also people take advantage of the, you know, most people, at least me anyway, when I would vet software, I would go look at GitHub and then I would download, I wouldn't download it from GitHub. I would download it using pip or whatever. And that kind of uh, dissonance or whatever you want to call it is another just opportunity for, for confusion and malfeasance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so these things are hard to detect. But I guess the area that you all have done a lot of research in, you built some tools around, and probably the 
the biggest area is around the package management side of things, right? That's right. So we've talked about typo squatting and some of the challenges where people might mistype things. And you talked about some examples where you found packages that look like they were intended to be installed by accident, you know, to catch those. If there's 7 million people type, you know, 7 million times pip install requests is typed, chances that a couple of those are misspelled or enough of those are misspelled is, is pretty high. But there were actually quite a few examples. Like, for example, the register had an article. When was this? This was, this is recent, March 2021. Uh, the title is Python Package Index Nukes. 3,653 malicious libraries uploaded soon after security shortcomings highlighted. That's right. This is, there's really a longer historical narrative too, to include this, I'll call this uh, political activism, anti-typo squatting activism, where this, you could call it an attack, is really about drawing attention to this risk. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of these were people like, look, I'm proving to you this could actually happen. That's true. I'm proving by creating this thing that uploads as requests with the SNT That's right. swapped. That's but were there actually viruses put up there? Like, what is the actual harm been? Yeah, so not all of these are. This one and uh, a number of others, we can discuss those if we have time, were largely benevolent, but demonstrated the risk. But yes, there have been, at least by our calculations, 40 known malicious typo squatters on the Python package index affecting thousands of users. We actually published a blog post on this, something like Python typo squatting is about more than typos. So yes, this has happened. I don't know the exact persons that it has affected. We just don't have that data. Sorry if it affected you. And we published this and got some debate on Hacker News. And this is at the point where Vince and I said, oh, there's really something here. There's a broad audience that hasn't had a voice that cares about this. Yeah, I mean, it could have been nothing. Right. If I'm a student at a university and I install it on a lab computer. No big deal. No big deal. Like who trusts those lab computers, right? <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, not just because like somebody could have installed something bad on it, but there's there are college students oh, yeah. who could be installing all sorts of just, you know, pranks and other kinds of stuff. So you should just treat those things with Contaminated. (laughs) Yes, they're fully contaminated. But on the other hand, if this is a data scientist working at like a major corporation or an agency and and that happened to them, it could be the thing that opens the door to, you know, access to the entire network and all sorts of um, lateral movement, right? That's right. There's even one of the earliest pieces of anti-typo squatting activism comes from Nikolai Schacher, who was writing his undergraduate thesis at the time in Europe. And he showed uh, that over a few weeks, he got over 17,000 downloads of a series of TypoSquad packages, including .mil, the military addresses of the United States military. So it is certainly possible that people in a more secure organization that really value security could accidentally be the victim of TypoSquatting. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it came out of a .mil domain shows that, yeah, that bad example could also happen. And also his thesis got covered on Ars Technica. That's right. Coolest undergrad thesis you know, ever. <laughs> exactly. That's way better than anything I did in <laughs> college. And how it got covered. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And then there was this project called Pytosquatting. Yeah. Pytosquatting. Yeah. It's a which play actually on... actually has been... Yeah. Like, like a play on typosquatting. It's a play right? on typosquatting. It's a clever one. And Benjamin Balderbach and Hanno Beck, who are you know, open source software activists, developers, also uh, a journalist, 
they really had a multi-year effort pointing out the dangers here, not simply criticizing, but trying to help Python Software Foundation and the warehouse, our PyPI crew, raise money and uh, build a consensus around trying to make this infrastructure safer. Yeah. Yeah. So they had this project called Pyto Squatting, but that actually got closed down. That's right. Yeah. Because they said that the PS, what do they call it? The PSRT, PSPF. Python Security Response yes, P- Team. Respond, that's it, PSRT. And I'm like, wait, there's a Python Security Response oh, yeah. Team? That's cool. And they respond to emails <laughs> too. They're good. Yeah, okay. So this is an organization, a group of people under the PSF banner that basically triage these types of concerns, right? That's right, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, the, I'll link to their, um, their page on python.org and they have their email they're, they also have rules for different types of disclosure, like whether you should email them, do other things. Yeah. That's right. And you know, if you find uh, a malicious package or even a package that you think is very suspicious, this is the, who to contact. I and mean, they're, they're diligent and timely. So what do you two think about how this should be disclosed? People out there listening, they find something. Should they go to Hacker News and say, look, this horrible thing I found on PyPI or on NPM or whatever? Should they quietly disclose that to the security response team and then talk about it after it's been removed and fixed? What's the flow for disclosure? Seems like it would follow you know, any other responsible disclosure process for you know, traditional bugs, you know, exploitable bugs that are with vulnerabilities, where it would be nice if you, know, you find a problem, contact you know, maybe the Python security team, you know, get in contact with the developer, get it fixed, you know, probably get the package pulled down, you know, if in fact it is malicious. And then, yeah, it'd be nice to have some sort of reporting mechanism so that everyone who uses it could be identified. And the first part, as John Speed was saying, you know, the Python Software Foundation and the PSRT do a good good job or a great job of, of you know, being on top of it, being timely, being responsible. It's much harder to notify, you know, there's no authentication when you download one of these packages. So it's very hard to know who's been affected. Right. So maybe just promoting that more would be be helpful, but then people have to know where to look and that they need to look at all yeah. becomes yeah. challenging quickly. Well, it's like the Xcode ghost thing. You know, there was 2,500 apps that were backdoored. And I think only the top 25 were even disclosed. And it's like, if there was a list of 2,500 apps, are you going to go cross compare? No, you know, no normal person is going to cross compare that announcement with their phone. That's right. 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 And it's just such a challenge. And I feel like, you know, here we had the same thing, right? We had 3,653 packages removed. Well, are you going to go check if you had those? It's extra hard because it's you didn't intend to ever have them. Right? Yeah. You didn't intend to swap the S and the T when you type request, yeah. but you did. And you accidentally, almost unknowingly got it, most likely. right? And so I do think it's really hard to push this out as a, an awareness thing and like, hey, you should know that this happened. And so just go check. right? The checking, I think, is really tricky. Yeah. I mean, like many software problems, you need to solve it with more software. You got to solve it with AI, probably. That's <laughs> no, you it. definitely have to solve it with AI. <laughs> I think one thing that's helpful and could be part of that process, but isn't always, unfortunately, is also taking a, a collection or taking that artifact that you found, let's say a Python package that was malicious, and making sure it gets to somewhere where it can be studied and hopefully future attacks prevented. And so for Python and a couple of other languages, there is actually an interesting project that has a very colorful name. It's called Backstabber's Knife Collection. Sounds very scary and malicious, <laughs> but it is actually yet another enterprising grad student 
trying to collect malware samples, especially of interpreted languages. Python is one of them. And so that there can be a community of researchers and hopefully then companies that can fight these packages. So that would be another thing I would add to the list. Yeah, there you go. Mark Ohm is the main person associated with that and does a, has written some interesting papers and great stuff. And so I urge you, if you come upon this and you say, how do I act responsibly here? Do the things Bent says, and also maybe grab a sample and give it to the Backcyberknife collection or another similar repository. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Have I just messed up my computer by visiting this webpage as well? I wonder. I don't think so, but there is a... <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm yeah, just teasing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I can't guarantee anything though, but... No, of course, of course, of course. Uh, before we get too far on, Corey Atkins also asked, when we were talking about messing up your computer, the lab computer, so on, he asked, could installing these types of things also affect shared server space on my IaaS land where I have a shared server running for however much someone else does something bad. I mean, theoretically, sure. It depends on the permissions, I would think. Yeah, if you install some dependency that has Keylogger baked into it, or I don't know, or you know, some sort of file you know, collector, and it has permission to traverse all directories, then yeah, I mean, I could certainly see a scenario where that was, was possible. I mean, I haven't, you know, to be clear, I haven't heard yeah. of that happening specifically, but there's nothing preventing it theoretically. Yeah, if you had a, a series of virtual machines, you know, it's pretty tricky from one virtual machine to escape to another, but I believe there have been examples, but those are exceedingly rare, those those sorts of vulnerabilities, right? That's right. So I'm, while we're on this topic, I want to throw out an idea, and then we'll talk about some of the tools you built. But I feel like we're right in the middle of this notification thing. Like, we've got all these packages, they've been identified, they have been downloaded, we can see that. We probably even have IP addresses, which you can reverse look up to DNS names as probably how those attributions were given. But it happens so often in so many different places, right? Like if I've got a continuous integration story that builds a Docker container that pushes to a, a Docker hub, and then my production grabs that from that container. The place where the problem happened is not the place where the problem is, right? It's probably GitHub or some other CI pool. We have a really nice thing for this in the account space, Have I Been Pwned by Troy Hunt, which is a really nice project. I definitely recommend people go there and enter their email address. And prepare to be horrified. Yeah, and prepare to be horrified. <laughs> There's 11.2, 11.3 billion accounts that have been breached, which is odd because it's more than all the humans. But we have more than one account, so there it is. But yeah, so you put your email in there. And then in the future, well, historically as well, but then in the future, you say, if something has happened and your email appears in some kind of password dump, password breach, or account or informational breach, you'll get an email saying, hey, we found something that should be concerning to you. Check it out. I would love to see something like this for PIP, right? Something that says, I PIP installed this thing and it just has a record of, here's my account. These are the things I've PIP installed. If there turns out to be a problem with one of those, notify me that that had happened. That does sound really useful. I don't think it exists. I don't think it exists either. And it shouldn't just be a PIP thing. It should be an NPM thing. It should be a gem thing. It should be a crate thing. It should be something that... Like a, a just a little bit of a wrapper that says, I would like to opt in to saying, here's my UUID, here's my email address, and here's the list of things that I've installed. If it turns out that one of them is horrible, just let me know. <laughs> it's uh, so <laughs> sensible, it makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's an idea out there as well. But this is way far down the line, right? This is, oh, we know this has happened. We know yeah. who's done it. We've, we know who's been affected and so on. But... Starting a little bit further back, you all have built some 
cool is to go and start at the beginning and say, well, let's look and see what might be out there that is bad, right? This is uh, the tool you used to find Pandar instead of pandas. That's right. I mean, I think the, the, Tell us about the it. first idea you had is the crucial one, which is that you need to know that there's been a compromise in order to report it. And yeah. right now it's surprisingly hard to know that. So we're not the only one to have devised a tool or approach to finding malicious packages on the Python package index, but we took a particularly simple one and we said, can we use simply the metadata, especially the name, but some other information too of packages and then look at just the most downloaded packages and check who has names that are very similar to those packages. This is where AI comes yeah. in. <laughs> Need crazy AI at this point. You do get a lot of false positives. People have similar names just because the packages are related. It's fine. There's no problem inherently with having a similar name, but right. we cracked open those packages too. This was uh, some very boring Saturday mornings of mine and simply scanned through the code <laughs> looking for anything that's suspicious. And lo and behold, we found one called Pandar that was actually doing key logging. Um, as a proof of concept, it's unlikely that it actually would have worked, but we reported it to the Python security response team, security at python.org. They said, yep, not good, yanked it. And um, it was just an example of, it's not that hard to find them. And uh, we were showing yet again with a pretty simple demonstration that it's not that hard. Interesting. That's really cool. So basically the tool is about finding Given popular packages, finding ones that are oddly similar. And then there's like a, let me go and see what this one's about. That's right. And so there's a couple additional checks that help anyone using it. And you can find it. It's an open source written in Python tool, command line tool. It also checks things like, for instance, is the description of the package on PyPI, is it very similar? So that what you are witnessing ah. is someone who's trying to not only type with squat the name, but in some sense, like squat the broader metadata or almost like the copyright of the package. Right. Because you wanted to look as similar as possible. Exactly. Like camouflage. So something that comes to mind. Yeah. Are you guys familiar with Sneak? Yes. Yes. Is it package? There's uh, a project and geez, I'm forgetting. Are you thinking uh, of the design. advisor project? Yes. Sneak package it, advisor. Yeah. It's neat. That's it. It's super neat. Yeah. That's what I was looking for. No, that's not how I want to spell it. Yeah. And so that thing is pretty cool. The reason I bring this thing up is you can come over here and I can type in a project like requests or whatever, and it'll tell us eventually, it'll tell us the package health score. Yeah. And it'll tell us things like there's this many PRs that have been open and closed. There's this many contributors. There's this many people participating in the, the maintenance looks like so on. One thing that I think would be cool would be to take this number plus a misspelling mm. and say, if that number is really, really low for a package that should be really, really high, that's a challenge, right? Yeah. Like if you look at the GitHub repo that is delivering this thing and it, it doesn't look right, if it's not associated with something that seems kind of hard to replicate, like a GitHub repo with many people participating over a long period of time, yep. that seems like that could be a good flag as well. Yeah, certainly. It certainly seems like there's a abundant opportunity to build something into the, the actual download client to the pip or a wrapper around pip where it checks these sorts of things and create speed bumps for you as you are trying to download something or use a package so that says, hey, this looks suspicious. Have you thoroughly checked this? And I think your idea could contribute to exactly such a tool or tools. Yeah, yeah, very neat. You've been working on this and Martin Karnaguski created this thing called Aurora and also reached out and said, hey, 
I'm also working on this. And so, yeah, tell us about this thing called Aurora. Yeah. So uh, we got an email last fall after publishing this blog post. And he said, hey, I've been working on a similar tool. Not only does it check this metadata, but we even do static analysis of the entire Python package index. And we said, Martin, that's awesome. Let's work together. And so over the past six months, roughly now, in an open source collaboration between a number of us at IQT Labs and Martin, we have further refined Aura, which truly is designed to do a static analysis of the entire Python package index, open source tool. You can find it. He releases uh, his data on a try as best as he can to release it regularly. We've also built a tool called Aura Borealis that key thing, his Aura produces 50 gigs of output when it's done scanning the entire Python package index. No human can wade through that. So, <laughs> And I suspect also the... IPA, the Python Package Authority folks, probably don't want everyone downloading that much data all the time. No, it's exhausting and creates so many database issues and other things. So we've been working on a tool called Ouroborealis that you've pulled up that is a front end that makes it easier to use the data set that Martin creates with this tool, Aura. This wouldn't necessarily be part of PyPI, though of course it, it could be. But we imagine this as a tool for organizations or persons that need to have global knowledge about either global knowledge about the entire Python package index and to rank and assess potential threats and go look look for those um, and then take appropriate action, or even individual developers that are really curious about packages. This is, makes it easy. The Aura Borealis isn't yet live, but we hope to make it live this summer. Aura is an in-production tool. It works. So go check it out. Talk Python to Me is partially supported by our training courses. When you need to learn something new, whether it's foundational Python, advanced topics like async, or web apps and web APIs, be sure to check out our over 200 hours of courses at Talk Python. And if your company's considering how they'll get up to speed on Python, please recommend they give our content a look. Thanks. This looks like it's really handy. You know, so the idea is basically it's going to run forever and that's going to generate tremendous amounts of data. Maybe just put a web front end on top of that static data for everyone to explore exactly. instead of generate it over and over. Exactly. Instead of having generating it over and over, now having 50 gigs and having to write your own custom, probably Python script that's, you know, you'll have to optimize and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So came out in the live stream just says, I accidentally typed sync instead of sneak, which also is hard to spell anyway, because it's like a non-common <laughs> spelling. So, which is an excellent way to demonstrate making a typo and getting the wrong package. I have no idea what that's going to return. I'm not going to pull it up. <laughs> Podcast imitates life, imitates art, imitates compromise. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, this is really neat. What, how would I use the Aurora data and the Aurora Borealis project? I guess there also we should talk about this from different angles, right? Uh, maybe I'm a CISO at a company and I'm concerned that all my people are psyched about data science and Python or NPM and web front ends. And they just make me nervous all day and I want to <laughs> I want to get on top of it. So I want as somebody who is concerned about I would like to know what's happening in my software supply chain or maybe I run I maintain pandas and I'm really upset that Pandar exists and I want to now be able to defend my package. Like it seems like there's different use cases and people out there. That's right. I think if you're a company and you have a group of software developers and you have the let's say, a security team that helps vet packages. So perhaps you put those packages in an internal repository so that then developers know that they're cleared to use. 
or Borealis will help you do that. And we're glad to set up pilots and discuss. You can email me, jmyers at iqt.org. But there's also other angles too. There's just, a de- you're a developer and you want to make an informed choice. This static analysis tool and its output can help you with that in Ouroborealis. And I think there is also, you're right, there's a maintainer angle and also a, a PyPI administrator angle where you want to either protect a, a set of namespaces close to your package or you care about the health of the entire ecosystem. And um, those are all possible user types. Yeah. And we could probably use your PyPI scan to go and say, look, can, can I say, look for things similar to my package name? Yeah, that's right. And we built that into Ouroborealis too now. So in some ways, PyPI scan was a demo and still useful as a command line tool, but Ouroborealis and Aura has that now built in. Are you all going to put an API on top of this? Good question. <laughs> that would be cool. The thing that's tricky, like everything in life, is it costs money and, you know, Step engineering resources and time. I certainly yeah. have a vision. And, uh, you know, if I don't do it, someone else should do it. Go make a lot of money of creating an, a technical infrastructure that every single package and every single new version of every package, IPI, NPM, et cetera, gets scanned, a variety of scans, static analysis, dynamic analysis, metadata analysis. And that gets stored in a database that where you and I can go make API calls and get the information that we should on these packages. That could be, you know, there could be a free tier and then a, a if you really need to make a lot of calls, a, a paid tier. But someone should do it, I think. Yeah, it's, it would be neat to know, like you said, integrate into, say, PIP even. So if I PIP install something, it could it could even flag it and say, hey, no, actually, we're going to block that. That's right. Preemptively because it's got some low score unless you do like a dash dash force. Like, no, really, I mean. Yeah, exactly. It's something that'll sort of slow it down as you call them speed bumps. I hope someone does something similar to that. We have uh, plans, but no active development underway. All right. So that sets the stage that some of the tools out there, at least to identify that there are potentially bad packages. And it's also, I guess, you know, worth pointing out if we go over, say, to PyPI, there's over 300,000 packages over there. And if there are 40 actually malicious ones, right, the chances are low. Low. They're not very high, but so people shouldn't be, you know, running for the hills in complete panic or anything, I don't think, from this. But at the same time, we should be careful. We should be cautious. So, you know, what can we do? That's the tough question. Vince, do you want to start or do you want me to go? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do. I mean, John Speed's hit on a few of them about just kind of be more deliberate, you know, checking your work before you download something. And also, you know, when you're considering dependencies, I mean, you, you mentioned C++ and, and you know, the late 90s. I vaguely remember those times. Remember when Boost came out, it was a big deal. Oh, yeah. You actually had a, a dependency. that. Was, I remember reading more books. Right. <laughs> Less um, internet, more books to make things so, yeah, we, we moved on from that. But ultimately, you know, it is yeah. worth considering, do you actually need this dependency? You know, left pad and NPM yeah. is a funny, you know, canonical example. Broke the internet because people didn't feel like typing one line of, of their own code. They wanted to import a left padding yeah. uh, dependency. I do feel that's a really good example. And certainly left pad came to mind, not as a malicious thing, no. but just as a, a supply chain Jenga tower type of thing. And somebody pulled too much on a part of the Jenga tower and it came down. Right. I feel that the the JavaScript community has way smaller Lego pieces than the Python community. The bit, The blocks that you click together here are larger. So I feel like there's just fewer in number, external dependencies 
on average in my Python experience than my JavaScript experience. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, numbers vary. I mean, I've seen Java or NPM people who use NPM, so JavaScript developers, the average package in NPM has is like 94% dependency, you know, other dependencies, only 6% is your actual code you've written. Most of the, the modern languages, meaning, you know, JavaScript, Python, and some others are in like the 90-ish range. And then you see C and C++ are much lower. Java somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So yeah, Python is, I would say, lower than JavaScript, but much higher than you know, the kind of you know, legacy languages that, that are you know, historically used. So, so be deliberate means things like don't just as fast as you can type pip install, whatever. Type pip install and then carefully type out the package name. Maybe give it a quick read before you hit go. Yeah, or just copy and paste. <laughs> Don't type it all. Yeah. So, for example, if I'm over here on PyPI, there's a yep. copy button I can click, and it'll it'll do exactly that. Right. Right. That's an option. Yeah. So yeah, just being a little more thoughtful and kind of you know looking at the dependency chain as well before you download something, which is hard, much harder than it should be to be completely fair. But that's helpful to know that you know maybe the top level you are. Using Joski, I guess is how you pronounce that. <laughs> I have no uh, idea yeah. what Joski is. Yeah, I don't I know pip install that right now. Let's see what happens. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Here's an example of one of those that should rank lower. No offense if this is your project, but it literally has zero stars, zero forks. Its features are to do, its requirements are to do, its IPI version banner is not found. And I mean, it is only four minutes old. They may be working. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, if it has dependencies, <laughs> this one probably doesn't. But, you know, take a look at those two. Just make sure there's nothing egregiously wrong at a minimum. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes makes it kind of insidious and uh, hard to see is the thing I directly look at may be fine, but the person who maintained that, did they make a mistake in the things that they depend upon or maybe, you know, transit, like follow that chain, that graph down far enough, right? There's a lot of layers that could be happening along the way. It ends up looking like a web and not surprisingly, just because of that, most of, most vulnerabilities inside of packages like this are in the transitive dependencies, the, the ones even below the first layer, the dependencies of dependencies. Interesting. So you can pip install the thing. What about pinning the version? I know there were some issues about having a private PyPI server, which I think is a good idea where you whitelist packages in. You say, we approve these things and only these things get installed. And if you want to use a new one, we've got to opt it in. And then now it's part of the organization. That seems like something you could do, right? There's PyPI server that you could set up that is a sort of pass-through uh, layer there. But then there was also the vulnerability of the version mismatch. Like if there's a higher version of that thing on the public PyPI than your local one. So people were putting in like data layer version 70, mm -hmm. you know? And then it's like, oh, there's a newer version out there for me to go get. So I'll get that, even though it was internal, meant to be internal only, right? So there's... There's these challenges, but what do you think about a private whitelist server? Uh, certainly seems valuable and seems like it's a, you know, another speed bump, as John Speed was calling them. But yeah, I mean, then you run into in, you know scenarios like the one you just described, where it's kind of, un I guess, that's undefined behavior, potentially, or at least not well-known behavior that it maybe isn't necessarily yeah. most intuitive. So even that might not be enough. So then, yeah, the pinning could help. And then, of course, there's the challenge of maintaining your pin at the proper level, which adds more, <laughs> exactly. more effort on the, the, you know, the developers to maintain up-to-date dependencies. At least publicly, yeah, publicly we have Dependabot on GitHub, yeah. which is way more of a pain than it should be to use because it, if you've got 10 updates, it'll issue 10 PRs, which conflict with themselves. Anyway, that's a long story, but it's still at least some automation that says, hey, there's a new version of this. Here's the change log. Mm -hmm. And we also have the, the CVE security 
checks of Dependabot, which are really good. Yeah, unfortunately, most of these type of squatting or just general supply chain attacks don't end up in the MVD as a CVE. Yeah, who's going to study this one and then not just say take it down, right? Like it's 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 living under the in the shadows, right? Of being unnoticed. To an extent, yeah. And NPM does a good job with their advisory service of like saying this is a malicious package and this is why we removed it. But not all package managers do that. And even so, then you have to go to all of them. Most of most developers are developing multiple languages these days, so it's hard to keep track. Yeah. What about having isolated environments for trying out new packages? So for example, one of the things I'm trying to do is if I'm checking out any new package, I have to pip install. You know, maybe that happens in a Docker container, and then I throw away the container. Or possibly a VM with snapshotting on, and then I roll back the snapshot periodically. Yeah, those both sound like great ways to you know, kind of have good hygiene and not you know, isolate the potential blast radius of, of <laughs> a you know, potentially malicious package. Yeah, it's one thing to say, here's a, a thing we want you to check out, and it's on PyPI, and it's, it's really well known, but it's, you know, you got to explore new things that aren't super well-known yet, right? Mm-hmm. And so yep. how do you install that, right? So I, I think some kind of blast blast store, like you said, like Docker, like a VM is not a terrible idea. Yeah, it's a good one. What else? There's the open source software found, uh, security foundation. Yeah, that's right. There's this is open SSF. Open SSF, clearly a reference to open SSL. Yeah, another well-known software supply chain compromise that of widespread impact. It's worth so it's pointing out that this group, for anyone who is becomes very enthusiastic about open source software, supply chain security in particular, has become a meeting ground where both companies but also persons interested in the sort of topics we've been discussing today and more have set up a series of working groups. There's six roughly and uh, meet every few weeks. Uh, open community, fun, interesting people, either uh, interested in the topic or actively working to uh, give back and contribute. Uh, it's run by the Linux Foundation, and uh, we would highly recommend it as a place to find other like-minded persons if you care about these sorts of topics. Yep, fantastic. And then there's the further on down the road, which we've touched on a couple of times, but maybe we can encourage some enterprising person, people, group out there to go after it, like a, a hardened PIP, or you know, we have things that are sort of on top of PIP, PIP tools, we've got PIP ENV. PIP X. We've got PIP X. I'm a big fan of PIP X. The isolation that that gives us kind yeah. of need. And just, I can see like like a PIP sec or something along those, or PIPs, maybe a plural PIPs. I don't know, for PIP security. Yeah. But something like that that incorporates some of these ideas. Maybe it, it checks in. You say like, I don't want to install any package that is not in the top 1,000. Sure. Or- of, of popular package, except for what I whitelist in on top of that or something along, or check with Aurora Borealis about the score yeah. or check with the have I been pipped or yeah. whatever that thing ever would become, right? So talk about like where you might see things going. Yeah. Well, there's been a couple, I'll call them starter projects in the hardened PIP area. Uh, there even was one called PIPSEC. You can find it on PyPI, but it's really, there's nothing there, unfortunately, at least yet. That namespace is claimed. The maintainers who we mentioned, uh, Benjamin Balderbach especially, are interested in doing some, just haven't had time. But, you know, other busy priorities. And I think there is a lot of potential to build out that idea and create something that could be useful to the average developer. Uh, JavaScript has a tool that has at least some moderate popularity called MPQ that does this. And I think it's time for the Python community to see if there's something similar. I would love to see something like that. Another thing is Google. Thank you, Google. Has it become a 
visionary sponsor of the PSF. And specifically, they want their funds to go towards critical supply chain security improvements, developing productized malware detection for PyPI, prototype of dynamic analysis infrastructure. So this sort of gets at the hint at um, you know, maybe there's something that the PyPA and PyPI.org could do on their end without even necessarily changing PIP, right? PIP's going to go That's talk right. to some API there and it goes, yeah, no, not this one. That's right. Or you're going to upload it like with upload a new package. It goes, no, we don't want to accept it. And Dustin Ingram of the Python Software Foundation at PyCon just recently devoted his talk to talking about Python and the software supply chain issues that we've discussed today and writ large to include typo squatting. And it's clear that there is energy and willingness from even core members of Warehouse and uh, Python Software Foundation to tackle these issues. And so uh, we're glad to see that. It'd be great to see something like that happening. I think layers as well, right? That's how you, you talk about security often is it's not just, well, you have a strong password and you're fine. Like, well, and maybe you have two-factor authentication and maybe you run as lower permissions and, 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 right? Like yeah. layers. So this, you know, this could be one of the layers, but not necessarily all of them. Yeah, I should note that we even, a couple of us at IQT Labs even put in an issue recently that on Warehouse that might interested some parties here. Um, it's issue 9527. You can also find it at short.iqt.orgs slash issue, uh, just a redirect. And we essentially call for something like social distancing for the top Python package indexes so that for very popular package names, the package names that are close by are blocked off. So that not saying that anybody who chooses those names is malicious, but just so malicious people can't choose them. Feel free to upvote that. We've been discussing this with uh, some of the members of the warehouse team. Yeah, so your proposal is that Pandar should not have even been allowed, right? That's right. Given that the package Pandas is so popular, minor variations on its spelling should basically be blocked or maybe redirect to Pandas and say with a warning, like, you tried to install Pandar. Did you mean to install Pandas? That's right. Something like that. That's right. So it's a, a way to build in guardrails so that the unwary don't fall prey to this. Yeah. Personally, my first impression is that that's a good idea. It's worth it that we don't need request and requests and requester. And, <laughs> you know, the potential harm is higher than the value of, you know, reusing very, very similar names. Yeah, we, we agree. And there's yeah. obviously yeah. trade-offs. Yeah. Vince, what do you think? You must agree with this, I, I suspect. I do agree with that. I definitely supported this. And uh, I know one other thing that's under consideration that's, that's relevant is namespacing. So you can, you know, Kenneth Wrights is the request guy. He has his namespace. You go to his namespace, you're less likely to mistype that and have someone, the namespace, and have someone who has claimed the same, same package within their own namespace. So possible, but, you know, it's another layer, I guess, you know, as you were describing it. Uh, yeah, it makes the commands, you got to type a little bit longer, but yep. Yep. it makes it really clear where it's coming from. I mean, that's what the point of namespaces in programming is. It's really clear what library it comes from or what part of your your code it comes from. Yeah. It's and, and who? Grouped together in a namespace. As yeah. well. I know Go has done, you know, use that to, to great success. So Yeah, Kim Benwick out there uh, put a cool comment that's sort of related to that, talking about the private PyPI server that's, you know, redirecting out. It would help if the private PIs you had an option to prevent the account uploading images from a, or pulling images with a certain prefix. For example, if you everybody named their packages ABC something at the company, you could say ABC is private, ABC star is private, and never ever you know go look beyond here for that type of thing. I think that that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it yeah, seems like a good idea. Yeah, I think it seems super simple and a, a good idea. Uh, I agree. 
All right, gentlemen. Well, very cool to talk about this stuff. Like I said, it's going to make all of us a little bit more nervous, I suspect. You know, for example, Corey Atkins out there said, I also just found an article on malicious stalker images. Now I am paranoid, which oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Well. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been there for a while. All right. Before I let you two out of here, though, real quickly, let's answer. The, I'll ask you the two questions at the end of the show, of course. So if you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? I use Vim uh, if I'm in the command line. But if I have the fortune to be outside of it, use Sublime. Right on. I suspect Jupyter Lab is also in uh, there. Definitely Jupyter's in there. Yeah. And Ben's? Uh, primarily PyCharm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll use Vim in a, if, I, if I'm already in a command line, but yeah, that's not as often these days. So PyCharm is just my, my idea of choice. Right on. And then uh, notable PyPI package, something that's like, oh, people should know about. Check out one called NetworkML. It's a package related to machine learning and network traffic. The lead maintainer is Charlie Lewis of IQT Labs. You can go find it on PyPI. Yeah, fantastic. So... Machine learning plugins for network traffic. Yeah. So it identifies like anomalies and other weirdnesses like that. Yeah, it parses network traffic. And one of the cool things it does is it helps identify what sort of device is being observed. So is this thing a printer? Or is this thing a personal computer? Is it an Active Directory controller, et cetera? Uh, is it a canary? <laughs> is it a canary? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you both for shedding a light on lots of what's happening, some of the things that are being done and what might also be done as well. So final call to action, people, they want to get involved, maybe do more, become more aware. What do you all say? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of work to be done. OpenSSF is a very welcoming, relatively new organization that has a nice list of stuff to do. Python Software Foundation also actually has a, a, an active list of items they would like to work on, some of which are re relevant to, to this topic. So that'd be two great places to start. I'll point you towards uh, back towards that GitHub issue. Feel free to uh, chime in. And I think there's definitely potential over the next few months. Additionally, we're actually working on a survey at IQT Labs called um, on secure code reuse. So um, if you want to help build the research foundations for this, you can find this survey at short.iqt.org slash survey. And uh, we're trying to understand the developer or data scientists or other programming professional experience with package reuse. So that's another way. So hopefully this survey informs future tools. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks for the work that you all are doing and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guests in this episode were Ben Tozer and John Speed Myers. It was brought to you by Square, us over at Talk Python Training, and the transcripts are brought to you by Assembly AI. With Square, your web app can easily take payments, seamlessly accept debit and credit cards, as well as digital wallet payments. Get started building your own online payment form in three steps with Square's Python SDK at talkpython.fm slash square. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. Thank you.